But we are journeying through the book of Mark, the gospel narrative in the New Testament. Today we'll be in chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there. You can scan the QR code. Uh, you can uh, upload the, uh, the app there, the ESV app. And also we've got some scripture journals on that uh, resource table to your right if you'd like to grab uh, the Gospel of Mark. When my kids were little, it was always so much fun to show them magic tricks, quote unquote. I would be sitting at the table and do a slight a hand trick, a sleight of hand trick with a coin where I made it disappear into my elbow and my kids would be mesmerized, not only at the disappearing coin, but the fact that their dad was a genuine magician. But the older they grew, the less they were impressed and they would often catch on to my tricks. Now when I try it, they just roll their eyes and I, when, I, when I start doing it for other kids. I remember when I was in college many years ago, I worked for a church as the youth ministry intern. We took a mission trip to the Christian Las Vegas, which is Branson, Missouri. And we were able to attend some of the shows <clears throat> that they had put on. And one in, particular, one in particular left an impression on me. There was an illusionist who was at one time uh, he, he had main, main stage shows in Las Vegas, and he toured the country, and he even traveled the world performing his acts. I was captivated as he performed trick after trick, but was very specific in saying that all that he did was an illusion. He, had, he then got to his last trick of, the, of his performance, and he made this massive statue disappear off of the stage. But after this, he took the time to reveal how this illusion worked. And he did what any magician or illusionist should never do. He revealed how a trick is done from start to finish. As he closed out the night, he began sharing about what the greatest miracle in all of history was. The life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God. This was no trick. This was no illusion and certainly not magic is what he said. His words are seared in my memory. So what do we do with passages in the Bible where like today, where we are met with the tension of a divine act and where Jesus truly human proves that he is truly God? Do we write it off as some kind of trickery or illusion? Do we shrug it off as a mystery? Do we try to explain it with science? Or does it press us to worship the God-man, Jesus Christ? In Psalm 50, Asaph, the worship leader, he writes a psalm called God Himself as Judge. He first writes to God's own people, His, his covenant people in verses 7 through 15, and then in verses 16 through 23, he writes to the wicked or those who continue in their wickedness. Verse 21 is key in God reminding creation. This is what verse 21, the last half of verse 21, Psalm 50 says. It says, you thought, God says, you thought that I or I am was one like yourself. This is a grave mistake for us to make, church. God is not like us. We continually need the reminder that we are part of the created order and he, God, is the one who creates and sets the order. 
This is the tension we need for today's text. So I wanted to just spend a minute reminding us of something. This is why we preach through the books, through books of the Bible, through all of the book of, a, of, a Bible, of the Bible, excuse me. Our core values are as follows. The Bible, the gospel, and the body. We are deeply committed to these three things. And this is why we try and keep things so simple. From nursery to senior adults, we want to let these three pillars guide all that we do. Even if we just do what seems like a simple fellowship in the park, we want it to be propped up by the Bible and the gospel. So why bring this up before we get to our text? If we are, listen, if we are committed to the Bible as being our highest authority, we will submit to it as God's inspired and perfect word for his people, even when it doesn't make sense. The easy thing to do is to spend four to six weeks on a series on marriage or money or life principles in general. Now, the question is, are these things important? Is marriage and money and life, are, are all these life principles, are they important? Yes, absolutely they are. But if we trust what God's word will do and has always done, bear witness to the triune God of eternity, then we must be patient and let it do its work on our lives. A series like this on a gospel narrative takes time. It takes trust and it takes tenacity. To be creatures of the word, we must keep our noses in it for long periods of time. So here's what I wanna do. As before we approach the text this morning, I wanna just take a few moments to be silent and just pray there where you are. You don't have to pray out loud. I'm not gonna ask you to stand and pray, but just pray there where you are and ask the Lord to help you trust his word. The longer we go throughout this series, the harder it's gonna to be to trust him. Like, why are we taking so much time to do this? So let's just take a minute and let's just be silent before the Lord and let's ask him for the trust that we need. Lord, would you help us now as we approach the text? Would you by your spirit help it to bear witness to who you are and what you've done? Help us to trust you. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. I'm going to read this for us. It says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, excuse me, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
And when he grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups, of the, in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. Pay attention to how this section begins. It's almost as we are brought back as the narrative hearers from a flashback from the passage that Rusty preached last week that covered John the Baptist being beheaded and the cost of following Jesus. If you go back further than that in chapter 6, in verses 7 through 13, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to preach and to teach and to cast out demons and heal the sick in pairs of two. Verse 30 here in, in Mark chapter 6 tells us that the apostles came back to Jesus to tell him all that they had done and taught. I want to pause here for just a moment, and I want us to think about, can this be what our prayers are like to God? Can we come to him at the end of the day, and can we say, Lord, this is what I was, I, I was a part of. I got to speak the gospel to someone. Would you help that, would you help that seed to grow in their hearts? Could this be what our prayers look like? Like the apostles coming back and saying, Lord Jesus, this is what we did. We saw this guy get delivered. We saw, saw this lady be healed. We saw this lady come to, to saving faith. Could this be what our prayers look like as the church? And then verses 31 and 32, Jesus offers and provides them rest. Listen, he provides them and he offers them and he provides them rest, not more work to do. They don't come to Jesus and say, look at all we did. And he's like, that's not enough. That's not enough. Keep working. Go out. Keep working. He says, we need to rest. The text says that they could not even eat because of the great need around them. They couldn't even get a break to eat. Do we see the graciousness of the Lord Jesus here? This is a rhythm that is being set for us. There is work to do, listen, there is work to do, but it cannot be done without rest. We need to rest. Even Jesus himself rests and gets away to be with the Father. So here's another question for you, church. Do you need rest? Do you need to say no to a few things? Maybe it's friends constantly calling you and, and asking you to come be with them, and you just feel exhausted. 
Maybe it's something here at the church that you're a part of and you need to come to me as the pastor and say, Ricky, I need, I need some time. I need rest. The Lord Jesus this morning offers us rest just as he did his apostles. Let's look at verses 33 through 36. Verse 33 transitions us to Jesus and the apostles finding rest in a desolate place. But the crowd sees them going, recognizes them, and they literally run. It says they ran on foot from all the towns and they get to where they are headed for rest and they beat them to this desolate place. Look at verse 34. We get a sense of Jesus' humanity as he steps out of the boat here, and it says, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, the Bible says, or a godly shepherd that would pastor their souls. In the Old Testament, in Numbers 27, 17, Moses prays this prayer. Listen to this. Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Numbers 27, 17 says, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. And then in verse 34 in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fulfills that ancient prayer. The people of Israel had lost their way again. And Jesus here, he has a deep pity for them as he begins to nourish their souls with authoritative teaching. Verses 35 and 36, they present us with a problem and a semi-solution. The hour had grown late and the disciples see a need, so they go to the need meter. They go to Jesus. This is a really good reflex for them to have. This is a good reflex for us to have as the church. The problem is that there was a great multitude, and we will see how many here in just a second, but there is nowhere to get food as they were out in a desolate place, and the hour is now late. So in verse 36, the well-meaning disciples present Jesus with a semi-solution. They say, send them away to go into the surrounding areas, the villages, and have them buy themselves something to eat. And then verses 37 through 44, make note of how Jesus responds to both the problem and their well-meaning solution. This is what Jesus says, listen. They come to him and they are like, well, let's just send them out to go buy something to eat and then maybe they can come back. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine the apostles here looking around inquisitively and there being an awkward and pregnant pause here? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they're like, like, like we don't, like, I can't even feed myself, Jesus. I don't have food. I hardly even have money. I quit my job to follow you. And now you expect me to give them something to eat. And the apostles respond, they, they respond simply with sarcasm. They say, should we use eight months wages 
to go and buy all these people bread for as much bread as they needed to buy for that great crowd. They would have to work for eight months, day after day laboring, and then have enough money to buy all these people bread. Listen, basically what they respond with is unbelief. They respond with unbelief to Jesus. He says, you feed them. And they're like, we don't have any money. We don't have any food. Should we go work for eight months so we have enough money to feed them for this one meal? They respond with unbelief. But before you and I chuckle at the apostles' sarcastic and unbelieving remark, pay attention to your own heart. How many times have you seen God do something miraculous in your life. And just a few moments later, you find yourself trying to figure something out on your own or even functioning in unbelief. How many times can we look back on the whole of our lives and see that God has answered prayer after prayer after prayer and been faithful and steadfast in our past all these times. And we're like, God, thank you so much for answering that prayer the way you did. And just a few moments later, we find ourselves functioning in unbelief. Well, I, I, don't, know how I'm gonna, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. When just a few moments earlier, God got us through something. He saw our way through. He answered a prayer. And we continue to function in unbelief. The back and forth conversation between Jesus and his apostles continue in verse 38. Jesus presses and he asks here, He asks them to do some inventory. Well, how much do you have? What what do we have? They say five loaves of bread and two fish. This would have been a meal, five loaves of bread and two fish. This would have been a meal for a small boy, much like a modern day Lunchable. The loaves would have been like bread cakes or crackers and the fish would have probably been small pickled fish that were meant to be eaten with the bread cakes. This was customary in that day. In verses 39 and 40, Jesus makes order out of what seems like chaos, questions, and unbelief. And look at verse 39 in Mark chapter 6. I want to read this. It says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the what? On the green grass. Let's parallel that with a psalm that you might know. Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in what? In green pastures. The great shepherd has the sheep sit and rest and await his provision in orderly fashion. The Bible says groups by hundreds and fifties. This would have made it easier to count and distribute food. But here's what I want us to see, is that God is a God of order, not disorder. 
God is not a God of chaos. This seems like too many people to feed. And Jesus says, have them sit in groups of 50 and hundreds on the green pasture. And the shepherd stands. In verses 41 through 43, we have what we've been awaiting. The miracle where the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, he takes five loaves, these bread cakes, these crackers, and two small, probably pickled sardines, and he feeds thousands with it. Jesus, before he does this miracle, he prays a prayer. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, says that he may, may very well have prayed a prayer that was customary before eating in that day. This is the way the prayer goes. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. I want us to pay attention to something in the middle of this miracle. Pay close attention to something that you might not read here. Pay attention to how natural the scripture makes this feel. Look at verses 41 through 43. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Do you catch the mood here? The Bible's like, this is not a big deal to the Son of God. He takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds thousands. And it says they were all satisfied. They ate and were all satisfied. That means they had plenty to eat. And verse 43 says there were leftovers. How good and gracious of a king do we have that there are leftovers from taking a Lunchable, a little boy's Lunchable, and spreading that all over these thousands of people and feeding them to where they are satisfied. And there are leftovers. In the last verse, verse 44, this is not a misogynistic by saying 5,000 men, but what it simply means is that there were 5,000 heads of households there. So this means that Jesus could have, listened. listen, 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 listen. Don't miss this. Jesus could have fed up to 20,000 people. Men, women, children, all sitting on that green pasture. Jesus could have fed 20,000 people with those five loaves and two pickled fish. Astounding to say the least. This is a bona fide verified miracle that only the Son of God can do. And this is no sleight of hand. This is no trickery. This is no magic, but an act that only God himself can do. As the narrative builds in Mark, as we, will, as we spend more time in Mark, it will become clear to people that Jesus is unlike any other person. But listen, for the Jewish audience listening, 
great acts that defied human reasoning was not unheard of. To rewind back to Exodus in the Old Testament, when Moses comes to Pharaoh and commands him to let God's people go, there are 10 plagues enacted on Egypt by God. But those chapters in Exodus tell us this, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. You can find that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. For some, even seeing this, Jesus feed the thousands, would have not changed their minds and their hearts would have remained hardened. And you've heard me say this throughout this, this series in Mark, that the greatest miracle is the fact that a holy God would love and have mercy on and save spiritually dead rebels like you and me. And this continues to be true. But can you imagine, especially for the apostles, that they were witnesses to these miraculous acts of God? They probably imagine that a great act of Jesus usurping the Roman government and establishing his kingdom here on earth was right around the corner. But listen, fast forward to them watching Jesus be arrested, tried before the Sanhedrin, flogged and beaten, shamed and jeered, mocked and scorned. He walked a mile up the road to Calvary as he bore that wretched Roman tool of execution and then he was nailed to it, hung choking on his own blood and tortured between two thieves and finally exclaims in dereliction, it is finished. And he gives up his life as a ransom in complete submission to his heavenly father. Can you imagine the apostles playing all these miraculous scenarios out in their head and there, marred and mangled, hung dying, is the one who they had placed all their hope in. And the question is, what now? This one who had fed the thousands, who had raised the lame, who had given sight to the blind, now hangs on this wretched tool of execution, dying. The question for the apostles would be, what now? We placed our hope in him, and what now? But little did they know. Just as he promised a few days earlier, death would be swallowed up in victory to feed thousands, to walk on water, to deliver the demon possessed, and to heal the sick was a small feat compared to the perfect Son of God who met every demand of the law with his life, who died in the place of sinners and walked out of a borrowed tomb. This is the act of God that the whole world was waiting on. Though gracious in his actions in feeding thousands, in this text we see this. The greatest act of grace is yet to come. Let us not, let us not get lost in the miracles. Are the miracles a good thing? Yes, they point us to one who is greater. But the greatest act, the greatest miracle is coming. 
when the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, is tortured on a Roman cross. And after he breathes his last breath, they pull him off of that cross. And they bury him in a borrowed tomb where three days later, that happened on a Friday. But listen, church, just like we're going to celebrate in a few Sundays, that was on a Friday, but Sunday was coming. Sunday was coming when the Son of God would roll away the stone and come out victorious. The greatest miracle was yet to come. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come up. We try our best to provide an opportunity for you to respond. And we're not asking anyone to to come forward here. I'll be in the back of the room. I'll pray with you. I'll counsel with you, whatever you need. We'd love to do that this morning. But there are two invitations. There are two invitations. The first one is, if you are here and you are not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, believe the greatest miracle there is, that the perfect Son of God would give His life as a ransom, that the Father would draw you to the Son and seal you with the Spirit. The question is, Ricky, how do I know, how do I know if I'm becoming a Christian? It's simple. The fact is that you don't want to sin anymore. You want to walk away from your old lifestyle. You want to leave the life of sin. You want to repent and turn your back on it and look to Christ. If you're feeling under the conviction this morning, please do not leave without seeing one of us who can pray with you, who can counsel with you. Repent and believe. For those of us in this room who consider ourselves Christians, who say we are in Christ, here's here's what I want to offer you this morning, the invitation I want to offer you this morning. To rest, to be fed, and to be led. To rest, to be fed, and to be led. Those three things are the offer before you today, Christian. Maybe it's saying no to some things. Maybe it's just taking time to spend time in God's word and in prayer to rest, to be fed, and to be led. How can we come alongside you as a church to do that? Rest, be fed, and be led. Let's pray.